0: a patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket, everyone. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting the outstanding Tom Chittenden. He is the Chief Data Science Officer and Founding Director of the Genuity Science Advanced Artificial Intelligence Research Laboratory. Tom is responsible for development and execution of the global AI and machine learning R&D strategy. This R&D initiative includes development of advanced deep learning, statistical machine learning, and probabilistic programming and analytics aimed at furthering scientific understanding of human disease initiation and progression, knowledge that could be directly applied in innovative products for better care and medicine in a range of disease areas. The principal focus of the work of Tom and his team is the development and application of integrated system biology models to investigate evolutionary factors of human disease, they're taking a lot of cost out of the production of, of these drugs. Tom holds his PhD in molecular cell biology and biotechnology from Virginia Tech and a DPhil in computational statistics from the University of Oxford. I'm excited to have him here on the podcast. And so with that, Tom, why don't you fill in any of the gaps of the intro and excited to have you here on the podcast today. First of
1: all, thank you very much for having me. And now you did a perfect job. There's nowhere to go but down after that introduction here. So <laughs> I hope I don't disappoint you.
0: Uh, you definitely won't. And so the work you're doing is incredibly meaningful. And obviously there's there's so much that needs to be done to optimize how we develop drugs. Before we get into the the power of of genuity science, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and, and what inspires your work in this space? Fantastic question, Saul. You know, I've always had a very strong sense
1: of inquiry and particularly how biology works. And, you know, most would say that that human biology is the most complex system in the known universe. Now, most cognitive scientists would like to argue that's human cognition. But I like to gently point out that that is human biology. And so we're applying artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques arguably the most advanced technology in human history, to advance our collective understanding of human biology in order to better understand disease. And I think that's what differentiates us from the rest of the pack, is that we have to fully understand human disease before we can start building more effective therapeutics. And what we have done over the last six years is we figured out how to build in something called probabilistic programming or causal inference. So we've moved away from strict classification, which is basically just dressed up correlation. We're not trying to find what correlates with human disease. We've had three and a half billion years of natural engineering that has gone into the current state of the cell. So everything in the human genome, in human biology, correlates with one degree to another. And so what we're trying to do is find or build techniques that can robustly identify the drivers of disease. And we have a very strong track record here, scientifically published track record now that says this is actually possible or feasible.
0: Fascinating. Just incredible to, to just to hear your passion and, and belief in the opportunity that we have in this space. Talk to us a little bit about how you believe genuity science is adding value to really, I think, the pharma value chain and the ecosystem of healthcare at large? Yeah, great question, Saul. We have been
1: referring to ourselves as a data insights company. So I run the the AI research laboratory, but we also have a very large initiative. It's patient cohorts, and we have some of the largest expertly curated patient cohorts in the world. And my responsibility or the AI team's responsibility is to then extract meaningful information from these disease sets or these patient cohorts. And we represent over 60 disease areas and that's why I refer to our algorithms as being disease agnostic. So I, I think this is the scope of the problem here. And the last credible study that I came across was back in 2015, where total revenue from the entire pharmaceutical industry was $1.2 trillion. $150 billion of that uh, was spent on R&D. Now, 75% of that, or about $112 billion in 2015, can be directly attributed to failed clinical trials. And so most don't know this, but about 86% of all clinical trials fail. And we believe at Genuity Science, the reason that they're failing is that we don't fully understand human biology is if we can identify the drivers, what's driving cellular behavior and dictating phenotype, we can actually write the ship down. We can build more effective therapeutics. And we have done this consistently now over the last four years. And so if you just bear with me a little bit here, what we published a, a paper in Nature Metabolism in 2019, with our investigators, our collaborators, Mike Simons and his team at Yale University Medical School. And what we were able to do is apply the AI in a disease state or cardiovascular disease state called atherosclerosis. And the manifestation of that in many different forms, but heart disease is the number one killer in the world. And what we were able to do in in 2019 was not only inhibit atherosclerotic plaque development in in mice, we were actually able to reverse it. Now, the information that we gained from that, we then published another more advanced paper in 2020 in in a journal called Cell Stem Cell, where we were looking at another big killer. It's thoracic aortic aneurysm. So, when the aorta ruptures, it's, it's a guaranteed death sentence. Hmm. And so what we were able to do with that study, from everything that we learned from the 2019 study, we were able to apply that in a longitudinal experimental design. So we were looking at how, how cells differentiate or change over time, and we were able to reverse thoracic aortic aneurysm. And now here in 2021, we are very, very excited. We've uh, We've been working with our collaborators at the University of Strasbourg, CMAC Baram's team there at the medical school, we are actually looking at the molecular drivers of COVID-19. And what we've uncovered is a very complex disease etiology associated with something called acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the bottom line here is that we've been able to block the virus's means of getting into the cell. So we are blocking viral uptake and viral replication in human lung cells. This work has been done in actual patient populations. And so please bear with me here, forgive my Midwest vernacular, if I'm just going to put it down at this level here, so everyone understands what we're talking about. If the virus can't get into the dance, it can't in the punch bowl. And that is what we've been able to show. It's not gonna be able to basically muck up all the signal transduction uh, networks and how the cell behaves. And so we're very, very excited about that. And as equally exciting is that there is a therapeutic that's currently in phase one trials that blocks the expression of this protein that we've uncovered in COVID-19. They're using it. A company in San Francisco is actually using it. And again, it's in a phase one clinical trial for oncology. So if we can actually block all of this in human patients and show that it's effective, this is going to be the industry's first repositioning, real repositioning of an actual drug, AI, ML aided or base repositioning of an actual drug. And so what we're showing now is that all of the math and statistics can point investigators in the
0: right direction to save time and expense in developing these therapeutics? Yeah, that's very interesting, Tom. So, this particular drug, at what point is it taken? The, the one you're telling me about for COVID that, you know, I guess prohibits the protein intake. How does it work? When do people take it?
1: We're not there yet. And I can't share all the specifics of this. Yeah, okay. we, we, we're just about ready to submit the paper for peer review. So I can't, again, I can't share the specifics of it, but it's a host protein. It's a protein that's expressed on human cells. Mm -hmm. And so when we block the expression of that, the virus can't interact with the cell, right? It can't gain access into the cell and then do what this virus is doing. That's what we're actually doing. And so we're not teaching the body or the immune system to attack the virus we're actually we've uncovered what we believe to be an actual mechanism of action that causes the disease and we're inhibiting it. Fascinating.
0: A new approach to it. And so this was arrived with the use, like this conclusion, this opportunity, this drug was, you got to it with the use of AI and machine learning. So, so talk to us about how and why that's different.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So Machine learning has been around for quite some time. And when I was in graduate school, we were working on that, you know, 25 years ago. But these are very, very sophisticated next generation approaches at looking at high dimensional omics data. So what I mean by omics, we're looking at how the, all the genes in the human transcriptome are expressed or how they are mutated, we're able to capture that on these data platforms. And then we use these very advanced analytics to go in and find patterns between you know, what's differentiating a normal patient population? Or in our case, what we were looking at those patients that are admitted to the hospital, but only need supplemental oxygen versus those that are admitted to the ICU and are on mechanical ventilation. What is the difference between the two? And artificial intelligence is very good at going in and finding the patterns with these high dimensional omics platforms that then at the end of the day, if they're doing their job, what they do is they, they generate very, very robust working hypotheses that then the investigators, the experimentalists can then get in behind the wet bench and validate. And that's how we work very closely with all of our academic
0: collaborators. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And so help us understand how you translate these approaches, these unique approaches in doing things better than what's available today. And, and what kind of results are you getting?
1: So the results that we are getting, again, 2019, we reversed atherosclerosis, 2020, we reversed aortic aneurysm or inhibited aortic aneurysm, and now 2020, we're addressing the actual pandemic. But the way that we go about this is the strategic application of six or seven classes of these types of algorithms, and we're integrating them together. So it's an ensemble approach of these classification methods. I have never trusted a single run of a single algorithm on a single cut of the data. So normally we have to do is we, we partition the data so that we're training the algorithms on a certain percentage of the data, usually 80% of the data. And then we are testing on 20% to validate that signal that the algorithm has actually uncovered. And so we cut our data up a 100 different times. We're using seven different classes of algorithms or anywhere from seven to 10. We've actually now published the first successful classification of human cancer patients with quantum machine learning, which is extraordinarily exciting. And so we're now integrating quantum machine learning as one of our classification approaches. But at the end of the day, we have as many as 700 different models that we can then evaluate what these models are saying, just not one one model itself, but 700 different models that are saying that this is what's most important. And so that differentiates, it's the strategic application of these algorithms. But then what we've done is that we take it a step further. At the end of the day, if we identify, say, the top 600 signals that our algorithms are telling us that are important, we go downstream with something called structural causal modeling or probabilistic programming is that now we want to find the gene within those 600 genes that is responsible for the state of all of these other genes in a network type of approach. That we have shown time and time again is extraordinarily powerful. So that represents, that single gene then represents a potential drug target. And then, so then we work with our collaborators to go downstream with actually building drugs on top of what we've found from a causal inference standpoint. So all of this comes back. AI across the the field is looking at drug development and assessing drug efficacy in clinical trials. We do all of that, but it can all be traced back to identifying the most appropriate drug target. And what we're doing is we're saying, hey, from our best guess, from what the AI is telling us, our best guess is gene X is driving this disease state. And that's what differentiates us from the majority of what everyone else is doing in this space.
0: That's fascinating. You know, you mentioned, Tom, the reversal of sclerosis, right? So what do you mean by that? And, you know, what's being reversed? Okay, so atherosclerosis is
1: the buildup of plaque in the vascular wall, if you will, and it occludes blood flow. And that can happen throughout the body. What we are doing, when I say reversing that, is that within these experimental models, and in in this instance, it was a mouse model, is our investigator, Mike Simons and his team at Yale, would let that process advance. So he mutated the mouse genome so that these mice were susceptible to atherosclerosis. So they're actually disease-prone mice. And so he lets that, that process, that pathologic process occur. And then by knowing how that it's occurring, we turn off that mechanism and it actually reverses plaque burden within these animals. And so it's a step further than just inhibiting the drug. So all of those patients out there, and I do not want to give any false hope. So I think it's very important here is that there is a lot of hype a great deal. There are a great deal of snake oil salesmen, uh, midnight infomercialists in this space. You would have thought that we had already cured cancer by now. We haven't. We're getting closer. So I don't want to provide false hope at this time, but we are getting much, much closer. And we've shown this in model out organisms that we can reverse an actual disease state. And where I think that this is going. So can I step back in my career just a little bit here with, you know, everyone has a defining moment. And my defining moment was in a graduate school class. It was a biotechnology course. And this was in the mid-90s. The professor was talking about something called DNA microarray chips and was explaining the actual application. And I was just absolutely fascinated. He said in a single assay, you can actually capture the state of the entire human transcriptome. And at the time we knew that there were about 22,000 or so genes, but you could capture the state of all these genes in a single assay. And there was something that just resonated with me. It's that, that voice that told me, this is the future. This is where yeah. things are going. And now that voice is telling me 25 years later with what we're doing is that these technologies are actually going to lead to the eradication of human disease. So maybe not in my lifetime at 58, but definitely in my granddaughter's lifetime, my six-year-old granddaughter's lifetime, we are going to see just some major breakthroughs with our understanding first of human biology, because we can't do anything until we understand biology first and then how we address disease.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks for that clarification. And it is exciting. And I do see the value, and I think listeners, you probably hear the value as well of the importance of understanding biology. Because if we understand how these cells get diseased and how they break down, we're able to, to stop that from happening, maybe even reverse it, like in the examples that, that Tom just shared. So, Tom, you obviously have been thinking about this for a long time, and the team at Genuity Science is, is working on a slew of different global disease data sets that are going to lead to some great solutions. In the work that you do, what would you say is, is one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced and a great learning that has made you and, and the team and the company better?
1: Yeah, we, we are tackling a number of very, very difficult or complex problems. And one of them, which plagues everything that we do, one of the reasons that we run ensemble approaches, and I, and I won't get too much in, or too deep into the weeds here, but it's something called statistical optimization. How well can an actual algorithm define a pattern in this data that is so highly correlated with all the other features? And so if you run that algorithm once, you run it again, you're going to get the same classification performance. You're going to be able to discriminate these two classes or three classes or four classes depending on the experimental design. But the features that that classification is based on will always be different for the most part. And so how do we build these algorithms that are more robust, that we can capture the real underlying biology? What is actually driving disease versus what is the significant amount of signal that actually correlates with the disease? And that has been the biggest hurdle or problem that we are currently addressing right now. And that's why we've moved into unconventional computing approaches like neuromorphic computing and quantum computing. It appears that they are, are much better at defining what's actually driving that disease or more consistently defining what is important and just not what is correlated uh, with the disease.
0: Yeah, it's a challenge, right? Because when you get in there, there's a lot of noise. And so, what do you actually do with it? You know, What's the signal? And, and it's challenging when you have such diverse data sets. I think that the approaches you guys are taking are, are exciting and unique ways to get to the answer in a clearer, quicker way. What are you most excited about today? Oh, fantastic question,
1: Saul. I could spend the next hour and a half talking to you about this. It's the advent of single-cell science. What I've been talking about, well, the nature metabolism in the cell stem cell paper were based on single cell, pulling, extracting signals from single cells and coupling that with very advanced generative AI models. And that I believe is going to not only revolutionize our understanding of human biology, but it's going to completely transform the field. And so what we found with that longitudinal experimental design from the cell stem cell paper is that. There is evidence now that it's not the whole collection of a cell population that's actually driving disease. It's specific pockets of abnormal cells that are actually driving disease. And we can now, again, at the single cell level, actually look at how these cells are changing over time, which gives us vastly more, much more information than we could have ever, ever thought to have been able to capture in the past or in the recent past, even. This, what it's going to do is help us address rare disease. And so the problem with this in the past has been the small number of patients that you can't build machine learning approaches with. And for example, we're working with Children's Hospital Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania on a disease called NF2. It's a rare childhood disorder. But now we can go in because we're looking at the single cell level, because we can, we can build these algorithms within a single patient and capture all that intra-biological variation within a single patient now. Amazing. And then we can take very sophisticated AI approaches, such, such as transfer learning, and then go look in bigger populations. And so that is going to be a real game changer in the field as well.
0: Wow. Just to be able to do that, right? Yeah, these, these rare diseases... You know, I had an interview with another gentleman who is focused on, uh, you know, child oncology, and he's talking about the number of drugs developed there compared to adult oncology drugs is just shameful. And a lot of it has to do with the number of patients and the size of the market. And it's a shame, but the things that you and your team are doing give broader access because of of the leverage. So, okay, there's this idea that I just learned, and I'm curious about your take on this, Tom. That when you take a look at, for example, a blood sample, you look at the cells that are there, but so much is not actually currently studied, such as the broken down cells that we could learn so much from. What's your take Absolutely. on that? Let me take a step back as well to address that question, yeah. is that
1: we have learned one of the issues that has been associated with machine learning is when you're using a priori. Biological information, right? We're only looking at the universe of features that we actually know. And in this case, genes, what we know what they do. But in the human genome, you you can go down to a a data repository or pull down from a data repository in any given day about 68,000 gene entities. We only know the molecular function of about 22,000 of these gene entities. And so what we have been able to do is couple. All of that signal that is very, very informative that we have no idea what it does and couple it to what we actually know. And that's how we are advancing our collective understanding. And in the same setting, we can do that with abnormal cells that we are pulling out of the blood. And in fact, we've done this with Alzheimer's already is that can you detect a signal in the systemic circulation or in the blood that is actually a surrogate of what's going on in the brain? The direct question or to directly answer that question is yes. The bottom line is yes. We have been able to pull out signatures that are highly informative of what's actually
0: occurring in the brain. Wow. That's awesome. So going back to your point, it makes the process of discovery more efficient and it cuts into that $150 billion of lost R&D. So if you're a pharma company listening to this, thinking about all that money going out the window think about this. This is an opportunity for you to do it differently. It's very exciting. I'm excited about this. And the future is now here. Tom, you, you talked about that day that you were in your classroom and you thought, man, this is the future. Well, now we have the computing power. We have the genome sequenced. We're ready for this. So take us home with what you believe we should be thinking about here. And then also as folks think about how they could best engage with the Genuity Science team, where's the best place they could do that? How can they reach out to you and the team?
1: First of all, we are, in the way I'm looking at it, is that we have just, this is the tip of the iceberg. We're basically, we're off to the races here. We have all the tools now to actually start addressing disease in a very, very robust, reproducible, meaningful manner here that will lead to more efficacious approaches to addressing disease. As far as how to get a hold of us, the website that we have, Genuityside.com, is a good way. Your listeners can reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and get a hold of me. That's a, that's a good way as well. But I would love to hear from your listeners here, their interest and what they are working on as well, because it's going to take a team effort. And we are extraordinarily collaborative at Genuity Science to be able to to address these very, very complex questions. It's going to take a lot of individuals thinking outside the box.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. Reach out. The time to collaborate is now. Tom, I'm floored with the awesome work that you and your team are doing, and I'm excited for the future. So thank you for inspiring that in in me. And and I know the listeners are too. So appreciate you doing that. And certainly excited to keep up with you and, and the success that you guys are having and will continue to have. Thanks, Tom.
1: Fantastic, Saul. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share what we're working on. So thank you.
0: Hey, everyone. Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage? Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit Smooth Podcast SmoothPodcasting com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.